Just before we start the show, a quick message to say that I need your help. Whether you're a long-term listener or you literally just found us, I would be incredibly grateful if you could go to mattalder.com and fill out a very short survey about this podcast. It won't take longer than two minutes of your time and will be incredibly helpful to me as I develop Recruiting Future into 2023. Just to recap, the website address is mattalder.com and it will take just two minutes of your time to complete the survey. Go on, press pause and do it right now. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi there, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 473 of the Recruiting Future podcast. DE&I remains a major priority for employers, but progress is slow and sometimes completely stuck. So how should companies be thinking about diversity and what practical actions can they take to build and benefit from teams of difference? My guest this week is writer, broadcaster and consultant Simon Fanshawe. Simon is a well-known figure in the UK and has recently published an excellent book, The Power of Difference. He advocates that progress comes when employers move away from the jargon around DE&I and genuinely understand how to build a diverse workforce which drives their specific business objectives. This is an absolute must-listen interview. Hi, Simon, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Now, many people listening will be familiar with you and your work, but there may be some people who aren't. So please could you introduce yourself, tell us what you do, and how you got to do it. It's mainly because I've had a slight brush with the media over my life, so I'm a sort of sub-regional kind of D-list, non-celeb. And people, I spend most of my life um, as, if I, as if I'm at a cousin's wedding, people looking at me going, aren't you Jones' <laughs> nephew? You know. So my name is Simon Fanshawe. I uh, work now in the field of diversity, really to try and get people to acknowledge that this is a, a human question. It's not a question of, of acronyms and... Um, and specialist knowledge. Um, so we try to help organisations transform both the opportunities they offer to people in, up and across their organisations, and also then to think about what true diversity means. In other words, how you combine the different things that people bring to organisations. So that's what I do. And I spend most of my time either, you know, working within organisations doing that, standing on my hind legs, chatting on about it, sitting down like this, chatting on about it. And then I sat down for six months and wrote a book about it called The Power of Difference. So I do that in a way that's as jolly as it can be. <laughs> so diversity and inclusion has been a, a kind of a massive topic amongst talent acquisition and HR professionals for well, for a long time, but particularly for the last two or three years, lots of employers saying it's their their number one priority. However, as we kind of look back, we're not really getting very far with it, are we? 
Well, change is slow and it's quite small. Equally, there are some fantastic things going on and there's some in real advances. I mean, you, you know, you'd be an absolute fool to take a kind of catastrophist view that nothing's changed. You know, all that black people experience is racism, all that gay people experience is homophobia, all that women experience is sexism, and that is it. I often say that, you know, prejudice may still be an everyday event, but it's no longer an all-day event. Now, so there have been huge strides, and and you can see it in 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 uh, you know some of the the changes at the particularly at the top of organisations where there were real bottlenecks or, or ceilings. But what I think is not happening is that people are not really going beyond the sort of the big group analysis of diversity. In other words, because it started as looking at deficits in opportunity and deficits in treatment, so everything from just not getting the job to being harassed to just having a horrible time, because it started there and and quite rightly an attempt to do something about that. To some extent, it's got stuck there, notwithstanding that there's progress and notwithstanding there's another element to this, I call that the deficits, and the other element is this question of of the diversity dividend. And so, you know, the starting point for me is that organisations are made up of people who are thrust together, frankly, randomly. I mean, we we think that, you know, there's an interview process. Yeah, but you get in a room with a bunch of people, you don't know them, you don't have to like them. The only thing you've got in common is this thing that you've agreed to do. So, you know, no matter whether you're in Oxfam, you're trying to defeat hunger, or you're, you're down in a you know, some tech lab in Cambridge trying to, you know, reinvent AI, whatever it is you're doing or making cheese or something, you've got this common objective. So, right, we're all going to make cheese. So the question is, how do we collaborate best to make really good cheese? And you do that through bringing your difference and combining your difference with other people's differences. So that's at its core what diversity is about. It's about the fact that we are fundamentally different. What it's become, I think, unfortunately, in some aspects, or in quite a lot of the aspects, instead of being about the flowering of difference, it's become about the imposition of a set of rules. So conversely and ironically, its diversity has become a tool of conformity. So with all that, sort of the positive intent and, um, you know, many employers paying lip service and saying it's their, their priority – where is it specifically that they're getting stuck and falling into that falling into that trap that you described there? Well, the first thing is is about why it is that, for instance, there are in the top three hundred jobs of the FTSE of the quoted companies. So, if you look at Chair, Chief Executive, and Chief Finance Officer, why is it there are more white men called John, David, and Andrew than women or people of colour? Now, you could say, well, this is to do with structural racism. It's to do with structural sexism. There is no doubt about it that racism and sexism is a background to that. But actually, the mechanism that's going on there is really about what those people who are making those appointments value in the people that they're appointing. And what they're valuing is what they've already got. In other words, there's a kind of image in their head of what a chief finance officer looks like or a chair of a board looks like. And so typically you find that boards are full of people who've had executive experience in big companies that are similar. My point is not that you don't want them. My point is you don't only want them. So what I'm saying is your question is why has there not been so much progress? I think the reason, one of the core reasons there's not been so much progress is that people are not thinking about building teams of difference the whole time. So they're not valuing a range of things. 
I'll give you an example. I chair a board, and there is a board member. And we've just um, recently launched a very successful bond. And we had to go through a series of meetings, which were pretty tough because it's, this is a you know technically quite complicated business. I certainly didn't understand it as we went into it. So you really had to have your wits about you. But something really interesting happened. She turned up at the board meeting where we had to make a particular financial decision. And she said at the beginning of the meeting, I'm really sorry, you know, this is all moving fast. The papers only came out yesterday. I haven't had time to read them. I'm just going to have to ask questions. She asked the best question. And I said to her afterwards, I don't think you should ever read the finance papers. And the reason I said that was that if you're not a finance person, which I'm not, what happens is it's easy to drown yourself and lose confidence. Now, what am I saying? What I'm saying is that there's a value because on the other side of the table, I've got Paul, I've got Ian, I've got these other board members who are absolutely financially really on top of it. They know what they're talking about. It's the combination of those things that produces the really good oversight and risk. So I think one of the big reasons why we, uh, we're not making advances is we're genuinely not valuing the difference that people can bring. So we have standard job descriptions or we have a standard. And, and the, the thing about that is you can't unlearn all those preconceptions that you've learned about what a chairman looks like, a chairman looks like, what a chief finance officer, what a good board member looks like. So what you have to do is you have to redesign the process. You can't just unlearn it. I often think, slightly rude analogy this, but you know when you're on the loo sometimes and it's it's not as easy to, you know, do it as you'd hope. And you're sitting there and, you're, you know, that's not how you create greater diversity, by sort of trying to, kind of, you know, overcome your bodily will. You can't do it by a force of will. You have to redesign the process so you can make better decisions. And obviously that's what a lot of employers want to do and are, are looking to do. What's your advice in terms of well-meaning things they might be doing that aren't really going to work for them and the things that the ways that they should be thinking and the things that they should be doing to really embrace that value and get that dividend that you're talking about? The first thing, and this is true about the organization of putting together teams as much as it is about individuals, it's the first thing they need to do is to be really clear about what kind of diversity is going to help them do what they do better. Remember the deficits and the dividends. Yes, there are deficits. You've got to unlock the discrimination of whatever's going on there. So that's a question of really understanding. It's the first thing you have to do. Really understand the data. Don't stop at the headline of, oh, it's sexism. Oh, so it may well be, but actually exactly what's going on. Back to my FTSE example. You can point your finger at those people and say, you're a bunch of sexists. Or you can say to them, hang on a second, let's think about a board differently. So the first thing is to understand exactly what you're doing and why you want to, why and what kind of diversity, because it's not a recipe diversity. It's not a question of like, you know, two blacks, one women and three gays add water and stir. It's not magical like that. You know, it doesn't work like that. You've got to be very precise though. That. So for instance, if you look at the big heavy industries like mining or engineering or the power industries, why would they want to have a different balance of men and women? Well, because... They've, by and large, got an older male workforce. They've got a narrowing pipeline, and they've got a numbers problem in 5, 10, 15 years. So actually, the point about appealing to women is to broaden the pipeline and widen the opportunities. Secondly, that helps them to widen the range of skills that they bring in in industries which are now massively transferring from brawn to brain. 
So instead of just going, we need more women, actually, that's, I mean, women don't come as a job lot. You need to know what kind of women, how you're broadening the pipeline, and then what you're valuing in what those individual women are bringing. So it's that kind of thing. It's, it, it's what you would do with any other strategy, which they don't do with diversity for some reason. People stop at the first, at the first uh, sort of uh, post. And accuracy, a lot of this is about accuracy. And when you do it with a job, you see, if you, I have this thing called the virtuous circle of selection. So it's like you're pointing a job to a team, okay? So you say, what's the team trying to do? Make cheese. What kind of combination of difference will help us make cheese better? Okay, what is that cultural? Is that, the, what is it? So who have we got? So who do we want to add in order to, another example, uh, English department at a big university, Head of department said to us, want to diversify the staff. And I said, why? What problem are you trying to solve? You've got great staff, great research, great income, great student attainment. It's all going gangbusters. What's your problem? And this person said, it's really simply stated, she said, there is great English literature being written in the world by people who are not English. The Booker Prize winner yesterday, I mean, this probably is going to go out time-wise. The, the, the latest Booker Prize winner is a Sri Lankan. So there's great English literature being written by people. What she wants in her department is to reflect that state of the contemporary English country. She doesn't want ethnic diversity. She wants geographic and cultural diversity. So that, it's that. It's trying to think like that about exactly what it is. And then you alter your job processes to challenge the assumptions you otherwise make about who you want. A number of organisations are looking at things like unconscious bias training building employee resource groups those kind of tactics i suppose to achieve this what's your sort of view on that well to take those separately the, the unconscious bias is 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 problematic because it's based on this thing called the, the the harvard implicit association test and those of you many of you will know it but just to recap in case you don't you're asked and speed is the metric you're asked to make an association between pictures and words and some of the words are negative, some of the words are positive, some of the pictures are, say, black or white, some of the pictures are women or men, etc. And what it, set, what it purports to do is to judge whether or not you've got these kind of unconscious, these hidden prejudices. Several methodolo methodological problems with it. Number one, it's speed that is the thing. Is that indeed an indicator of the fact that you've got these kind of hidden prejudices? Secondly, you have to have a cutoff line to say whether you are biased or you aren't biased. Actually, is that arbitrary or not? But the other thing is that there's no evidence now, and the, and the people who invented this thing admit this now, there's no evidence to suggest that actually if you have an unconscious bias, you necessarily act in that way. So we don't know whether there's a connection with what you think. Now, I would say unconscious bias is, is pointless because actually what it allows everybody to do is go, oh, phew, well, everybody feels biased. Oh, that nothing matter. And the more you talk about bias, the research tells us, the more that people just assume it's a given so they don't try and challenge it. So there's methodological problems with it. But I think there's another problem, which is this, this idea that if everybody thinks bias is pervasive, what happens is people start to price it in. They go, oh, well, you know, phew, it's not me. Actually, the thing with bias is you have to find ways of challenging yourself. So I don't find unconscious bias a very helpful concept because actually you have to be simply, you're aware of the things you've learned because unconscious bias is a very useful thing when you're crossing the road because it's an unthinking, learnt response and you don't walk out in front of moving cars. This is a good thing, the Tufty Club, if you're old enough to remember that. <laughs> so this is a good thing. But it's not a good thing when it comes to judging people. Standing by the bus stop, black, I was, this is for me and my husband, black guy goes past in a smart convertible. I think, oh, I wonder who he is. 
That five minutes is a true story. Five minutes later, one, five minutes, how good are the buses in Brighton? Not very good. White guy goes past in a bus, in a, in a smart convertible, and I go, oh, nice car. Now, that's because I've learned images about, you know, black guys in smart cars. Now, you know, that's not an unconscious bias. I mean, that's something I have to learn about. And 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 so I know what people are saying, but but it's in your control, whereas the unconscious bias idea feels like it's not in your control. But it's not in your control, as I said before, by just going, I'm going to fight them. You actually have to find different ways of of, of, of designing the way in which you see information. So that it's very interesting if you look in recruitment, We've just uh, finished a project which was semi-successful in an academic institution. And one of the reasons it was only semi-successful was I could not get them off CVs, no matter how hard I tried. So what we do with this information is we, we, we've developed this system where you say, what exactly do I want? Back to English language department, you know, what do I want? I want cultural and, ge- uh, and geographic uh, difference. Okay, so this is what I'm going to look for. So I'm going to devise a set of questions that, criteria that meet that then i'm going to give a series turn those criteria into scenarios because that's the best predictor of future work and then what i'm going to do is i'm going to reorganize that information when i give it to the selection panel so that when the candidates have written in i'm going to then give it to the selection panel with all the answers to the first scenario and all the answers second scenario with no personal information this gives you a really good opportunity to judge the evidence that applicants provided against the criteria that you explicitly developed. They would not do that except reverting to CVs. And the thing I kept on saying to them, what do you want out of CVs? What are you trying to get out of looking at them? And of course, what they talk about is research quality, uh, you know, what their career has been. So you say, look, research quality, okay, where was the latest article published? Somebody else peer-reviewed that. If you respect the magazine and they did it on their own, well, that's that's it. So we can find proxies for things, but actually, you know what they were looking for. What they were really looking for was comfort that they fulfilled the assumptions they had in their mind about what they wanted. So what I'm constantly trying to do is challenge that and redesign the process so we are unable to challenge our, our assumptions. And the problem with the unconscious buying bias and training is that starts a conversation, but it doesn't create the change. How many of us have been on courses? We go to the day. It's fantastic. We, oh, God, that's so great. And we go back, and a day later, we're buried in our to-do list again. And we've forgotten all that. It just goes down as a really interesting thing that we did. The CV thing is, I still can't quite get my head around why we still use CVs or consider them so important. And, you know, the way you described it there, it really is just one step away from analysing someone's handwriting to see (laughs) whether they they could do the job, basically. And it is interesting, this thing, too, of of, of, um, this really interesting research by Iris Bonnet at Harvard, who's our kind of research mentor. But she, she did some really interesting research of what's the most accurate predictor of future success. And it is undoubtedly giving people real work scenarios to respond to. So we just did um, a really good one. Uh, It was a great process for a chief operating officer of a big um, health trust hospital. And one of the questions that was completely brilliant. So it's Friday afternoon, and the water goes off. What do you do? Now, if they'd asked a question that said, give us um, an understanding of your approach to business as usual policies in the context of utility failures. Well, you can BS that question. 
But you can't BS, it's Friday afternoon, you're about to go home and the water goes off. I mean, you either know what to do in that situation or you don't. <laughs> and, and so, you know, what I always say to people is when you're asking these questions in the application, think of scenarios and tie them down as accurately as possible. So you're doing three things in this, this debiasing process. We call it recruiting for difference, for difference. It's a key. Explicit about who you're looking for. So you're trying to get rid of the assumptions, be absolutely explicit about and have a discussion with the others about really who are we looking for around the virtuous circle of selection that does you that the second thing is turn those criteria into really detailed scenarios so you really know what people can bring to you and the third thing is you reorganize their answers in this way iris calls it joint selection so the all the answers to the first scenario all the answers to the second and what it gives you is an evidence base which is as de-biased and as objective as possible. I mean, look, you can't summon up a pipeline where there isn't a pipeline that's diverse. I get that. So it's not going to solve every problem. But it does absolutely appeal in a different way to people, and it gives all the candidates a fair shot. And when you we got we did one in, in an engineering department, again in a university, and we got this great response from a woman who said, I felt like I was invited as a woman and assessed as a scientist. And I just felt that was the right balance because they really wanted to attract quality women candidates. So they made a lot of effort, which in engineering is tough, you know. But she really felt she got an absolute fair crack of the whip, which, you know, is the is kind of a key thing inside the process. Coming back to employee resource groups, I suppose looking at that in the context of inclusion in general, how should employers be thinking about that? Well, one of the problems with them is that they can become grumble hubs. And that's because they get very internally focused. And it happens in two ways. One is it's internally focused. So the first thing to do is to say to the employee resource group, we are setting you up and resourcing you because we want to hear your voices, not voice, voices, and contribution to our contributions to the development and implementation of our company strategy. In other words, this is not about you. This is about our collective effort. And it's giving you a voice in our collective effort, number one. Secondly is that one of the problems with back to the deficit point I was making earlier on, you've got to be really careful uh, about corralling people into these big acronyms and, and big categories. I mentioned women are not, a, a, as I said before, you know, women don't come as a job lot. If you're going to describe women and use that as a category, you're doing it because you understand that women as a group experience certain kinds of discrimination and you're trying to find out exactly what that group experiences and therefore the nature of the discrimination and therefore the nature of the solution. So you've got to be really, really accurate about that. I mean, LGBT is another one. Somebody said to me recently, are you LGBT? And I said, well, you can't be all of them. You know, I mean, what does that group describe? If you're going to have policies about LGB, well, these are all going to be about pensions and compassionate leave. They're partnership-based things, really, and, and, you know, whatever. If you're going to have policies around trans people who are transitioning, that's going to be around health, time off, blah, blah, blah. These are very different things. So, so what I'm saying is that you have to be very careful about how you group and people together. So BAME is mad. You know, BAME encompasses everybody who's not white, apparently, so it doesn't encounter people who experience racism who are white. So that's one uh, problematic with it. But you're ramming together people who've got Asian backgrounds, Caribbean backgrounds. I mean, blah, blah, blah. 
religions, faiths, family shapes. I mean, there are a lot. You're bugging them into this great clown's pocket of a category and saying, you know, you're both ludicrous. But what they all understand, that group of people, is they understand racism. So number one, you've got to think about what you're doing when you put together those categories. And that means you have to recognize that in each category, there are massive ranges of opinions, aspirations, talents, styles, etc. So the first thing is when you set up the employee resource group, focus it on the strategy of the company. Secondly, don't think that it's got a single voice. Don't allow gatekeepers to set themselves up in those things and say, we are the gay voice. No, you're not, love. Actually, it turns out there's big disagreements about a whole bunch of stuff. And the point, I, the reason I spent so much of my life fighting for gay equality was precisely not so we had to be all the same. It was precisely so we could all be different, you know, and live our lives. And so it goes on. So, the, 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 But there are common experiences. So the first thing is strategy. Second, recognize that actually you will have some common experiences. Women understand something about negotiating big organizations that they can share with other women. That's valuable in career terms. So supporting and mentoring each other, that's another good function. And the third thing I always say in employee resource groups is have sessions for the whole company or the whole department or whatever, which are about key strategic issues for the company that are not about you. So don't endlessly do the Women's Network on Women. If you're in Rolls-Royce or, I don't know, Aeronautics or something, do it on the marginal power relationship to fuel, blah, blah. I don't know what people who design air engines talk about, but you, what they talk about is how you can get less fuel, heavier fuel for more power so you get a better jet engine. Do the meeting on that because that way you put yourself into the center of what the company's really about. So you move yourself from being kind of minority status at the periphery into the major things that the company's talking and thinking and worrying about. So final question, tell us a bit more about your book, where people can get it and how people can connect with you. The book, I mean, I don't want to obviously overestimate it, but I mean, it is, it is fabulous. You know, I mean, let's, let's, <laughs> you're supposed to say that, aren't you? doesn't matter. Even if it was absolutely terrible, I'm supposed to sit here and say, absolutely marvellous. Well, it was also, it was also released the same week as my book. So, <laughs> so well, did your book do well? Did your book uh, yes. Yes, it did. It was, um, Yes. Well, we can bathe in mutual self-congratulations. <laughs> I wrote a book called The Power of Difference. I did it during lockdown, and it, and it sort of poured out of me, I think, because what I've tried to do in it is I've really tried to humanize this idea and center this idea of diversity and inclusion around this notion of human difference, the idea that we can't understand each other, but the great joy is to try and do so. So that's what lies at the heart of this. So I've tried to take out all the jargon and, and, and make this, A, profoundly human. Secondly, I've added lots of stories of extraordinary people that I've met over the years. So to try and illustrate that in ways that are different from just the theoretical. And thirdly, I've tried to put in some, some practical, helpful hints. So, I mean, it does have a sort of at the end of each chapter, you could try this, um, which is jolly. So it, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, I quite like it. I know that's a silly thing to say about one's own book. I quite like it because it's not just a businessy book. You know, I found it, to my real pleasure, lots of people who aren't professionally involved in this actually have enjoyed it. And so that's a real pleasure. So I've tried to open it up because I, I don't think this is a technical subject, mm. which actually, you know, we know, you know, we diversity people, 
you know, we know about, you know, all these things, intersectionality and fragility and privilege. And we've invented a whole language around this stuff, which is designed to stop other people in our companies understanding what's going on so that we can educate them. This is absolute nonsense. You know, we're all experts on diversity because we're all human. So I've tried to take it back to that, really. And it's available everywhere, you know, and on bookshops and Amazon. And, and it's published by Kogan Page and get it on there. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, there's either our diversity by design website or simonfanshaw.com. Simon, thank you very much for talking to me. Real pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Simon. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us there by searching for Recruiting Future and on TikTok, where you can find us by searching for Recruiting Future Pod. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to our new monthly podcast newsletter and get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me.